0: Please turn in your Bibles to John 18 as we continue this series leading up to Easter, looking at John's Gospel. John 18 was on page 1087 of the Church Bibles. So here we are again in the second last week of this little series in John 18 and 19, in the last moments of a man's life. And they are moments that are very precious to us as a church family because our whole faith comes from what this one man would do when the night that we are looking at was over. And when we come now, as we do tonight in John chapter 18 to verse 28, we come to the night that is very near its end. It's at that point of a night when the day is about to break in. It hasn't quite yet, but you know that point in the early hours of the morning. I'm seeing a lot of it of late with our little ones but the early hours of the morning when it feels like the day is almost here but it's not quite here and the night is holding sway and it is as dark as it will get for the evening but uh, any moment you know any moment it's going to come that first glimpse of light and not because your eyes have somehow got used to the night but because the day the actual day has broken in well, as we get to John 18, verse 28, we are just before that moment. If you've been here in recent weeks, as we started a couple of weeks ago in John 18, verse 1, you'll realise that the scene that we are looking at as we watch the last night of Jesus' life before his cross is a very simple scene. Three players, really, in the scene. And yet, as Ben told us as we began the series, that we're all there. Our whole world as we were in John 18, verse 1, in a garden. There's the religious, the irreligious, an unlikely band, an unlikely unity, and yet there they all are, gathered against their God, in rebellion against their God. And here in these last moments of the night, John is going to zoom in even closer on these different players, the religious, the irreligious, against their God, and he's going to zoom in and he's going to show us amazing detail as well as seeing those who are lined up against their God, those who include us, the three players, the religious, the irreligious, God himself, we are going to see why they are lined up against their God. Over the course of the verses that we look at tonight, uh, 28 to 40, we're going to see three exchanges, three trades that are made on that night, in the last moments of the night. Three times we will hear the phrase uh, over this week and next handed over, a phrase that literally means to betray, to trade someone in. And so what we're going to do tonight is quite simple. We're going to look at each player in the scene and we're going to see their exchange one at a time. And so scene one, verse 28, we see the first exchange, the exchange made by the religious elite, the religious authorities, the Jewish leaders. And quite simply, this is their trade on that night. They say this, I would rather have religion than the king. I would rather have religion than the king. Have a look with me in uh, verse 28 and you'll see it there. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. As I said before, it is that early morning, the night is uh, almost over but it's a night that's been filled as we saw last week with furious interrogation by the jewish leadership of jesus they've tried him they've tested him and they've become increasingly convinced as if they weren't already that they must be rid of this man and so they bring him to Pilate because they can't do it themselves they bring him to the man that they know has the power to do what they want to do which is kill him As our scene begins, we already see there's no justice here. They've already made up their mind. The trial that we'll see before Pilate is a kangaroo court. For them, you see in verse 30, the mere fact that they present him before Pilate is enough to say he's guilty. He's a criminal. And so we hand him over to you, they say. We exchange him. You can have him. We don't want him. Here's our first exchange, an unwarranted and undeserved exchange. But remember what John's account is doing for us here is it's not just giving us the facts, the history of what happened that the Jewish leaders handed Jesus over. We see why they do it. Look again at verse 28, see the thick irony in the verse. John doesn't want us to miss it. They reach Pilate's palace. And it's the eve of the Passover. Just a few hours they will celebrate the Passover that we had read out for us in Exodus, this meal that they were to commemorate God's amazing act of rescue. Enjoy the Passover lamb together. And so for fear that they would miss out on that ritual, that ceremony, that festival, they wait outside because this was a Gentile's palace. And there was a chance if they went in they would be unclean and unable to share in the meal the next day you see the irony they're about to kill an innocent man blood is about to be all over their hands but they are desperate to be cleaned while they do it to be religiously pure while they kill the son of god they the jewish leadership the ones charged by god himself to be the watchmen of god's promises to to wait and keep watch for the day that god's king would come here they are with the king in their hands and what do they do they want to kill him and they want to be pure as they do it. But there's nothing pure here, is there? Have a look at verse 35. Uh, John makes it very clear that they are fully culpable. Take this in. This is their trade. It's a trade that insiders make, uh, religious people, people who, are, who think they're close to God, that they're on the inside of things. They'd rather religion than their king. They want to eat the lamb of the Passover and yet they're about to slaughter the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's the trade. That's foolish, isn't it? Religion for a king. They'd rather the ritual than the real thing. They'd rather eat this earthly feast than have a seat at the heavenly one. And we are shown this by John up close because all too easily we find ourselves lined up against the king in just the same way preferring ritual and religion rather than relationship with the king how easily religion rather than the king is what we want you found that and i'm not just talking about the the formalities of religion i'm talking about the habits of our christian faith that we think keep us close to god We prefer religion because it's got a momentum of its own, doesn't it? The the habits that we get into, uh, our attendance at church or a small group or whatever it might be, these are the things that tell me I'm doing okay. The king becomes almost irrelevant to it. We prefer religion to the king because we stay in control. If my faith is about what I do, uh, certain acts, certain rituals, then I can control how close I am to God, not him. And here, I suspect, is probably the key reason we prefer religion rather than King Jesus. We prefer religion because it keeps us safe. you found that? Comfortable with the status quo. Religion doesn't challenge us. Religion doesn't ever defeat us. Have you found that? Let me explain what I mean because that is what King Jesus is meant to do when he confronts your life. He is meant to defeat you Let me ask you this, when was the last time the word of King Jesus caused you to repent? When was the last time the word of Jesus caused you to submit or to let go of some dearly held dream or desire? That's what King Jesus does. He walks into your life and he demands change. When was the last time the word of your king defeated your pride? When was the last time you heard the king's call to change and you actually did? You see, religion keeps you safe from that, safe, a cocoon from change and challenge. But see very clearly here in these opening verses of our passage, religion is not safe, it is anti-God. It's not merely a distraction or neutral, it is anti-God. God. For here in John 18, when the true God comes close to those who are religious, who are on the inside, when he confronts them, do you see what happens? They want to kill him as some sort of extremist, as someone who thinks this ritual, this play acting, there's more to it than that. How deadly religion and ritual are to our faith. You see, Easter, as we will celebrate it in a couple of weeks, is not a play at Oberomegau or anywhere else. It is the pivotal moment in all history when we killed God's son. It is our darkest day. But it is also our only hope. And so let me ask that we make our prayer this Easter that God saves us from religion. May he clear the smoke of ritual from our eyes that we might see our king for who he is and believe. Bow the knee and repent and believe. Well, there's the first trade, the trade the insider makes, the religious person. Here's the second one, perhaps the key one in our passage, the trade the irreligious makes, the one who wants nothing to do with religion or God, and that is Pilate. His trade is this. He says, I would rather be king than believe the truth. I would rather be king than believe the truth. Did you hear the words uh, we said to one another in our creed tonight? It is a creed that... On Sundays, millions and millions of Christians confessed together he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. That's remarkable, isn't it? That such an insignificant man should warrant such a memory. A man, uh, really, what the history books say, was from the lower nobility of Rome, uh, made governor of one of the least desirable provinces in the empire. He is a backbencher. If all things had been equal uh, he would have been forgotten his name would have meant nothing to us like thousands of other roman governors who went came and went if it wasn't for this if it wasn't for the fact that one of the many many who were brought before him during his 10 years in charge as governor was jesus of nazareth he spent just 6 hours with jesus just 6 hours and now his name is etched in history forever. And over the years Christians have unfortunately made Pilate to be the good guy. He, he seems to have had a rough deal as if he didn't really want to kill Jesus. He was just too weak to handle this frenzied, bloodthirsty crowd. To the extent that legends have grown that he and his wife became Christians But tonight let's set legends and myths aside and see the true account of Pilate's exchange. It is this, I would rather be king than believe the truth about Jesus. He's introduced in verse 28 uh, as a second player in this scene, uh, the Roman governor, an unclean man, an outsider, nothing to do with God's people or promises. And in verse 29 we see him grasping at justice, trying to establish some sort of charge to this trial. And by verse 31, he tries very hard not to be involved. He's irritated by the disturbance of all of this. What has has this got to do with me? I have nothing to do with Jesus. I have nothing to do with your religion. Away. But he's told only he has the power to make this decision. You are part of this, like it or not, Pilate. And so by verse 33, he enters into things with what I think is really the key question of anyone who comes before Jesus, and that is this. Are you the king? For Pilate, it's a mocking question. He sees this one who is held up as a potential king of the Jews and he says, are you a king? Is this the best they've got? Tell me, Jesus of Nazareth, that mask off, pretense over, who are you really? Well, in verse 34, the scene changes rapidly. All of a sudden, the accused, Jesus, leaps out of the dock and takes his rightful place as the judge in this court. Since Pilate, uh, you want to get behind masks to the true identity, let's do that. You want the truth, you tell me then, who do you think I am? Me, a king, is that your idea or did you hear it from others? Others who have witnessed my rule, whether it be my father, whether it be the very spirit of God who testifies to the truth, whether it be John the Baptist, the prophets, the many signs that Jesus had done in the past three years, was it his own words, Jesus' words that he heard? Did he hear of Lazarus who had walked out of a tomb, a dead man, alive? Is that where you heard it, Pilate, or is this your own idea? Who do you say I am? And now Pilate is on trial. Jesus will require from him a plea, as he did from Nicodemus, as he did from the woman at the well and the man born blind. Who do you think I am, Pilate? You see in verse 35, Pilate by now is squirming, desperate to keep a distance, not wanting to enter into that question. This trial is not about me. It's about you and your claim to be king. This isn't about me. And then it comes, verse 36, the truth. I am a king, Pilate, but I am not a king that is any threat to your little fiefdom of the Roman Empire. No, my kingdom has bigger ambitions than that. My kingdom is not of this world. Oh, it affects this world. In fact, it will turn this world upside down. They'll reset the clocks because of me. And it affects you, Pilate. It will turn your life upside down. This is your moment, Pilate. Pilate, yours is a kingdom of armies and weapons, of palaces and colonial outposts. Mine is a kingdom of truth. Jesus has already said in this gospel that because of him we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. You see, like other kings, like other revolutionaries, and Jesus is that, he is committed to liberation, to setting people free. But he is a king powerful enough to bring freedom from something far more powerful than Rome, something far more destructive than political oppression. He has come to set us free from our own sinful nature. Because Pilate is not the real king. A real king in a world like ours needs to have the power to forgive our sins. Power to stare down death and grant eternal life. And so Jesus says, for this, all of this, I have come into this world to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me, Pilate. So you want truth, Pilate? Start listening. Well, there's Pilate's challenge. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What's what side are you on, Pilate? Can you imagine the tension of that moment. There was Pilate. He started the uh, scene, thinking he would ask a couple of questions, dismiss this man, and get on with his life. And all of a sudden, everything hangs on his response. What side are you on, Pilate? Truth or lie? Darkness or light? Life or death? There's a pause. Will he say what he knows in his heart of hearts is true as we see as this gospel goes on? Yes, Jesus, you are the truth. Your kingdom is the true kingdom and you are king. I am a pretender. Will he say that? This is his moment of choice. And then the verdict comes, or rather his plea. Verse 38, in the face of all he has been told, what is truth? What's truth? It's a profound question, isn't it? Whole philosophies, whole world views have been shaped around that question. What is truth? It's a postmodern question. But I suspect for Pilate, more than anything else, it's a tired question. Tired question by a a, a professional politician, a man used to daily compromises, of balancing uh, the needs of different pressure groups, uh, a life that's been lived in the half-light of half-truth. What's truth to a man like me? What use is that? It's as Francis Bacon famously said about this scene, What is truth? asked jesting Pilate and would not stay for the answer. But again, see what's behind his question. It's another one of these trades. If you look in John 19, verse 16, you'll see the moment that Pilate finally makes his trade, hands over Jesus, but he's really already done it here in this verse, verse 38. He does it because he's made evaluation, yes there is the truth about Jesus but compared to what I have, compared to my power and that's what he's holding on to here, what's truth to me? I'd rather be king than have to respond to the truth about this king. Now, let me say whether you are here as one who knows the truth about King Jesus or someone who is still, enter, is still to enter your plea, See here in these verses with Pilate that there is a huge difference between knowing the truth about Jesus and believing the truth about Jesus. Pilate knows the truth. But believing the truth involves a lot more. It involves bowing the knee before this king as the true king, handing over control of your life to him, living for his honour and not your own. And for Pilate, that's too big a cost. His own power, his own position is too precious to him. He's not ready to hand over control and so his moment passes. But see in his moment, see yourself there. Especially if here tonight you know the claims of Jesus, you know they are true and have now bowed the knee before him. Let me ask you, what would cause you to reject this truth, to fail to believe Jesus? Would it be like Pilate? Would it be about keeping power or some sort of self-control over your life? Would it be a refusal to live life dependent on another, submitting to the will of another in obedience to another? Because that's what's involved in believing him. Or is it a bit like Peter that we saw last week? Is it about reputation? I'd rather keep my reputation intact than submit to him as king. Yes, Jesus is king, but I'd be willing to hand him over if potential loss came or the fear of a lost opportunity at work or amongst friends or with family. There's a challenge here in Pilate's response. Uh, Is your life so clearly marked out as his, as his sovereign territory, all of it? Or do you just know him, know the truth about him? Or perhaps for some it's like a Judas who we saw earlier. What is truth, the truth about Jesus compared to material gain? To bow the knee before him is to hand over control and say, all of this, all I have is yours, not mine. The funds that I have are for your dreams, my King, not mine. That's a big call. But that's what's involved. It's the difference between knowing the truth about Jesus and believing him. So let me challenge you to search your heart this week. Yes, we know the truth of King Jesus, but are we believers does our, li- uh, our life demonstrate a firm belief in the supreme value of this king and the truth about this king or are we in part or in whole like Pilate? Francis Bacon said, as I said before, what is truth after jesting Pilate and he would not stay for the answer. I wish he had stayed for the answer because the answer is wonderful. Wonderful. It's written large all the way through John's Gospel, written that we might believe and have life. You see, the truth about the the truth that Jesus is declaring that night is that what is the truth is the wrong question altogether. A better one is this, who is the truth? When Pilate and we with him say, what is truth to me? What we are really saying is, what are you, Jesus, to me? Jesus declares in John 14 that he doesn't just tell the truth, he is the truth. And so as we weigh up our belief, ask yourself this, who is Jesus to you? He is the one who brings truth of such power, John 8 tells us, that it can set you free. Because here is one at last who brings this truth to our world, to each one of us, for all our pretense of self-determination, for all our attempts to live safely and comfortably and avoid being dependent on others, for all our religiosity or our pretense of power or freedom. Jesus walks into this world and in John 8 says, no, you are not free. In fact, you're more like a slave in a rich man's house. That's the truth, says Jesus. Tell me, says Jesus, all your freedom, your choices, your progress, your morality, your self rule, your materialism, your wars, your tolerance, have they got you where you'd hope they would? And before you say yes, says Jesus, or almost, or getting there, answer this How can a man claim to be free when death hangs over them? You have a master. Doesn't that make a mockery of self-determination? Doesn't that make a mockery of our freedom? You are not free, says Jesus. Someone else says this far and no further in your life. Not you. But, says Jesus, I tell you the truth and the truth will set you free. Truth is, I am a king, king of you, Pilate. You have no power, he'll say in John 19, other than that which I have given you. You have no breath in your lungs other than that which I have given you. Truth is, you, me, Pilate, we're sinners. That's the truth. Sitting in the king's chair. Rebels who have no right to such a throne. And of us, Jesus says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But here's the truth. If the Son... God's Son, your King, should set you free. You are free indeed, mastered by nothing, free from sin, free from slavery, free even from death. But if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. What is truth? That, Pilate, is the truth. And your moment has passed. And just as we close with that truth ringing in our ears we turn to the last of the three exchanges in this passage and that is God's own exchange remember the scene you have all the world the religious and the irreligious against one man it's hardly a fair fight is it and that's what it seems all the way through this passage there are words that it's almost like Jesus is like a billiard ball being bounced around passed around by all these people he's led to them he's handed over he's taken he's judged he's summoned he's flogged in a minute But sown into the account is this overriding reality. Do you see it there in verse 32? All of this happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Jesus knew this would all take place. He knew because God is in control of this scene. For before the Jews had made their decision to hand him over, before Pilate does that in John 19, God the Father and his Son had made their own exchange that led to what has followed, an exchange that they didn't make out of fear, unlike the Jews or Pilate, but out of love. It's an exchange uh, detailed in the most famous verse in all of John's Gospel, John 3.16, which says this, For God so loved the world that he gave, same word, that he handed over his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And as Jesus was handed over by his father, he wasn't done so as some powerless victim of cruel injustice. Yes, it was cruel and yes, it was unjust. But all the power was his. As he himself says in John 10, I lay down my life, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I have authority to lay it down, I'm that sort of king and I have authority to take it back up again. And so in John 18 verse 38, we see how that happens. Pilate goes back outside with what he thinks is a genius plan to release Jesus. He's figured out a way through this mess. He went out to them and he said, I find no basis for a charge against him. He's telling the truth. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? No, they shouted back, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas, we're told here, had taken part in a rebellion. The Jews had brought Christ, claiming he was a rebel. Pilate, in this genius move, offers them a choice, a a real rebel. Barabbas, a a first century terrorist, a a coward, clearly guilty man. Or Jesus, surely they'll release Jesus. But his plan fails and now he too is powerless, forced to release a guilty rebel and forced to send an innocent man to his death. He may be a powerful man, but now, having turned his back on the truth, he finds himself very much bound up with the will of sinful men. His and the crowd's fate are bound together. They want no part in this kingdom of truth. In fact, they choose a violent, cruel man instead. What an indictment on humanity this scene is. A humanity that portrays itself as wise and progressive and reasonable and tolerant and inherently good, well... Behold humanity here. This is our darkest hour in the early hours of that first Easter Thursday. But remember as we close, as we said at the beginning, the night is almost over. In this moment, of all moments, God is breaking in. His day is breaking in. As Jesus is led away to the cross, it's the beginning of his walk to his coronation as king. The wonderful irony of God's grace is this. the crowds' wish perfectly coincides with what we desperately need. Out of the frenzied cries in verse 40 and they are that out of the brutal and horrific scenes that will follow, out of all of this mess, the wreckage of humanity at this scene, the aftermath will emerge the most unlikely of survivors. Do you see him there? A guilty rebel. See the wonder of God's exchange. All this chaos, all this violence, all this sin and out of it a guilty man is released. See the glorious free decision of your God, an exchange born out of love for rebels. He gloriously surrenders his life for our freedom and so an innocent man is handed over to death and a guilty rebel handed over to life. I have no idea whether Barabbas grasped the enormity of what was happening that night as night turned into day and his cell sprung open nor if Pilate ever listened to the answer to his question of truth's value but John writes these things for you and I to believe. Three exchanges made in the wee small hours of a Thursday two of them utterly bankrupt and horrible one of them of such beauty and value God who loved, handed over his son to death, that you might not perish. Six hours Pilate had with Jesus, just six hours, and for all eternity he will be remembered for one thing. He heard the truth of Jesus and walked away. Six hours he had. If tonight you do not believe, let me close by asking you this. How many hours have you had? How many times has the truth about King Jesus come close to you that you might believe and in believing have life in his name? It is time to choose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your wonderful exchange that you and your son and your spirit made on our behalf. An innocent man led to death, a guilty rebel set free. Father, help us to be those who see our king there on the cross and boast not in what we have or what we have done or our religious behaviour or our own claims to power, but in him. Help us to be those who don't just know of him, but believe him. We pray this for his glory. Amen.